Will you please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12. And the guys have some Bibles. They're going to make their way toward the back. If you need a Bible, then get their attention. They'll get one to you that is marked at Genesis chapter 12. In 1957, John F. Kennedy, three years before he would be elected president, won a Pulitzer Prize for history for his book titled Profiles in Courage. That book offered a look at the lives of past statesmen and how they demonstrated courage in the midst of political adversity. Just as an aside, it turns out JFK didn't write that book. Recently, Theodore Sorensen, his longtime associate, has admitted what has been suspected for a long time, that he was actually the ghostwriter of that book. But I bring it up because I think we often see the faithful characters in the Bible that way, as profiles in courage. Now that's true to an extent. But if we simply look at the qualities of these men, then we will miss something that's extremely important. The fact is, these men did what they did only because of the gracious work of God in their lives. And what's more, invariably, God's work in their lives was often despite them and despite their flawed character and their errant ways. Because these are mere men and not a mythical Camelot whose failings are to be masked or excused, because of that, we can learn from them. Because even with all that they accomplished, they are really just like us. And in fact, all that they accomplished came from the work of the same God that we serve. And so beginning today and for the next several weeks, I want us to take a look not at profiles in courage or even profiles in faith, but I've titled this series Portraits of Grace because that's what they are. I've often said that experience is the best teacher especially when it's someone else's experience. Friends, when will we learn that? That we can look at all of those who have gone before and we can learn from the things they did right and we can learn from the things they did wrong, but we always start over anew as if there has been no history prior to us coming on the scene. And God has provided all of this rich history and all of this narrative to be a teacher to us if we will have the wisdom to learn from and apply it. The first portrait that I'd like us to see is that of Abraham. And I encourage you to look at the outline that's inserted in your bulletin and, and look up at the top at the title for today's message. It says, Abraham, from God's grace to great faith. And I named it that way because I want us to see that Abraham's faith and Abraham, the father of the faithful, as we will see. And Abraham, the man of great faith. But even Abraham's faith had to grow. And that it grew only because of the work of God's grace in his life, which is precisely what each of us needs every day of our lives. God's grace to grant us greater faith. So let's ask the Lord to help us as we look at the life of Abraham. Father, we thank you for gathering us now. Thank you for quieting our hearts. And we ask you to focus our minds upon your servant Abraham, but most important, upon your work 
in the life of your servant so that I can see in my own life, so that we can see as your people how you continue to work in us despite our flaws, despite our struggles, yea, despite our sin. We pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Now, this is the first introduction we have in the Word of God to this man, Abram. We'll see in a bit at the end of chapter 11, his name is first mentioned. But this is the significant portion of Scripture about God's assignment to him and God's calling of him. And then from that point on, throughout the Word of God, this man Abraham is, is so important that in your New Testament, he's mentioned over 80 times. The foundation that is laid in the opening book of the Bible, in the life of Genesis, the, in the life of Abraham in Genesis, and the narrative about his life, lays the foundation for all that is taught about salvation and coming to God through faith alone in your New Testament. Over 80 times he is mentioned, including, and let me show you some of those passages. So important was Abraham that in John chapter 8, you have this encounter between Jesus and his detractors, the Jewish leaders. And they saw as significant the need for them to be identified with Father Abraham. And so they say, Abraham is our father. But Jesus said, if you were Abraham's children, then you would do the things Abraham did. As it is, you're determined to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. But it was absolutely important for them to be identified with this man, Abraham. And then you have in Romans chapter 4, that Abram's offspring are not only to those who are Jews, but any who are of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. That is, he is the father of all of those who share the faith, the belief that Abraham had in the true and living God. And it was important for Paul to write that in Romans 4 because of this vying for identification with Abraham. That's how great and foundational this man was. Galatians chapter 3. Those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. The Bible, several times in your New Testament, quotes a passage from Genesis in the life of Abraham in chapter 15 and verse 6 of Genesis, which it says, as quoted in Romans 4 and in other places, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. He's quoted again that same passage from Genesis 15, 6 in James chapter 2, but then notice what else is added. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. In Faith's Hall of Fame, many of you are familiar with that in Hebrews chapter 11 in your Bible, there's a litany of names from the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament. Most of those names are mentioned once for some notable act of faith, but Abraham is cited no less than five times in faith's hall of fame. In the Old Testament, the first part of your Bible, God will often introduce himself 
in a particular way, as he did, for instance, to Moses in Exodus 3. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, and of Isaac, and of Jacob. And whenever God does that, it is always Abraham who is listed first because it is this man Abraham whom God called and through whom then the descendants that would ultimately be the progenitors of the Lord Jesus Christ came. So God's grace indeed produces great faith. It did that in the life of Abraham. And I want you to see how God's grace produces that great faith. So I have in your outline three things that God's grace does in producing this great faith, despite. And the first one is despite our sinfulness. God's grace produces great faith despite our own sinfulness. And we see that in the life of Abraham. Chapter 12 tells us what God initially told Abram. But just prior to chapter 12, at the end of chapter 11, we're given a bit about his background and where he came from, his lineage. So take a look at verse 26 of Genesis chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 26. After Terah had lived 70 years, he became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. This is the account of Terah's family line. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran became the father of Lot. While his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans in the land of his birth. Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarah, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarah was childless because she was not able to conceive. Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarah, the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years, and he died in Haran. Now why is that significant for us? Because then you go right into chapter 12, and the Lord had said to Abram, and I want you to leave your country, and I want you to leave your family, and I want you to go to a land that I will show you. But the background to that is, Abram is from this family of Terah in Ur of the Chaldeans. And it's, it's a, and a model for us, an example for us, of the fact that God's grace produces great faith in his people, but he does that despite our sinfulness. Now, why do I say that? I say in your outline, this teaches us that God's grace is unconditional. And I want to explain why I say that. God's grace is unconditional. I've heard many times over the years, Bible teachers say, you know, when God wants to get something done, he looks out over all of humanity and he looks for a man or woman that he can use. As if God is sort of a talent scout. And he's always looking out for somebody who's just got the right qualities. Well, guess how many people have the right qualities? <laughs> Zero. None. Including Abraham. God did not call Abraham because he had the right stuff. God called Abraham for his God's own purposes. And he made Abraham into what Abraham 
was to become. God is not a talent scout. Rather, God is like an artist, taking what he already created and refashioning it and restoring it. The truth is our sin does not give him much to work with, but it certainly gives him much to work on. And that was the case with this man, Abraham. Now, why do I say that? Because Terah and his family, including now Abraham, was from this place called Ur of the Chaldeans. You see that. And God calls him out of that place. Well, what was going on in that place? Joshua chapter 24 and verse 2 tells us, Long ago, your forefathers, including Terah, the father of Abraham, lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshipped other gods. But I took your father Abraham from the land beyond the river and led him throughout Canaan. So this place, Ur of the Chaldeans, is in what is known today as modern-day Iraq. Later in scripture, it comes to be known as as Babylon. And this is the area from which Abraham comes. He was a stone-worshipping idolater, as was his father, as was his family. In fact, Terah's very name may be derived from a Hebrew word that means moon, and the moon was the patron deity of the city of Ur. And the wives that we read about, that Abraham... And Nacor took Sarah and Milcah. Those names are similar to the name for a moon goddess and this moon goddess's daughter. This is from where God calls this man. But he makes him a man of great faith despite his idolatry, despite his sinfulness, because God's grace is unconditional. God's grace can be bestowed on anyone. And in fact, if it is going to be bestowed at all, it is going to have to be bestowed upon people who are unworthy of it and incapable of carrying out on their own the tasks that God assigns. Same is true for Abraham. So the Bible tells us, just straight up in Romans chapter 3, there is no one who seeks God. And so far from the idea that we have that there are people out there who are groping for God, if God will only give them some information, the Bible says, "Uh uh-uh. That wasn't true of Abraham. It's not true of anybody else. There is no one. Abraham was not seeking God. It was God seeking Abraham. The Bible says, in fact, quite the opposite. No one seeks God. Men suppress the truth, Romans chapter 1. And therefore, before God, all people are without excuse. And but for the unconditional grace of God making his call on the life of a man or woman, then all would continue to go their own way, and that's true of Abraham as well. And so God speaks of his people, those who descendants who came from the line of Abraham. He speaks of them this way. Isaiah chapter 41. You whom I have chosen, you descendants of Abraham, my friend, I took you from the ends of the earth, from its farthest corners, I called you. And that calling began with this man, Abram, in this pagan, idolatrous city called Ur of the Chaldeans. So God, God's grace, produces this great faith despite our sinfulness. Because of our sinfulness, if His grace is going to be placed on anyone, it's going to have to be unconditional because we couldn't meet any conditions. And then secondly, in your outline, it's not only has to be unconditional, but it's God's grace then that captures our hearts. 
God's grace is unconditional. He calls us out of our sinfulness as he did Abraham, and then he captures our hearts. You know, Abraham was an idolater. You say, wow, an idolater. God used an idolater. Yikes. Well, guess what? Everybody here is an idolater. Because idolatry means that we place someone or something above God. And the moment we place anyone or anything above God, we become idolaters. Every person that God calls and God saves then is an idolater just as our father Abraham was. And it's God's grace then that has to capture our hearts. And that's why in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, the Bible says, you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. See, I don't really think of myself as an idolater. I've never bowed down to a statue or an image. I don't see myself ever doing that. But notice in Colossians chapter 3, covetousness is idolatry. Ever coveted? Ever desired something sinful? Of course you have. If you've sinned, you have. (laughs) Because that sin came from your desire for it. You're coveting for it. And the Bible says that covetousness, that desire, that intense desire for someone or something other than God is indeed idolatry. That's why the Bible tells us for all of us, Even if we've never bowed down to an image and been involved in in pagan idolatry, we have our own forms of it. And so the Bible says in Titus chapter 3, at one time we were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. But notice when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared. You see, His grace has to capture our hearts from those idols. But it's when His kindness And his love appear. He saved us. Not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. That's the case then for our father Abraham. God's grace produces great faith, but it does that despite our sinfulness. That means that God's grace has to be unconditional. And it's God's grace that has to, to capture our hearts. And that's what he did with this man then, Abraham such that God moved on the heart of this man and he called him in the midst of that paganism and he said, this is what I have assigned to you, this is what I want you to do, and now Abraham is willing to follow. Not because of anything innate in Abraham, but because of what God did in the heart of that man by his grace. So Abraham then, the Bible tells us, as the narrative goes forward, traveled 600 miles from Ur to Haran. From Ur to Haran, the passage at the end of chapter 11 that we read tells us that they they settled there. Terah died there. Now, why Haran? Why did they go 600 miles and stop? Well, Haran is probably the ancestral home of Terah and his family. His his, uh, uh, progeny are probably from there. His ancestors are probably from there. And then he later moved to Ur, and now he is going back to his ancestral home. Now, why do we say that? Because the names of a couple of his sons are the names associated with the cities right around Haran. In fact, one of his sons' names is Haran. And one of them is Nahor, and there's another city right around there that's derived from that name as as well. So Terah is taking the trip with Abraham part of the way, 
but he stops and settles in, in Haran. And Abraham stops and, and settles with him. But then he takes the other 400-mile trip from Haran to Canaan. A thousand-mile journey to the unknown. God had called him out of Ur, and he said, I want you to go to the land that I will show you. And the reason that he is called the man of faith, the man of trust, the man of belief, is because he was willing to follow God when there was no evidence with regard to where God was taking him. We demand evidence, don't we? We want to know the outline. God, I'll take the first step if you tell me where that first step leads. God says, no, you follow me because you trust me, because you have faith in me. And that's what Abraham did. And from Haran, the Bible tells us that he then made the 400-mile journey from there to, to Canaan, and he took with him, the Bible says, the people he acquired there. And it says the people he acquired there. A lot of times people read that and they think, well, he acquired some servants there. He purchased some slaves there that he took with him. It's actually not the word that's for the purchase of slaves. It's actually more likely that he acquired people there because Abraham had proselytized these people by preaching to them. That he told them that he was going to a land that God was going to show. And he convinced people to follow him. And they said, where is it? He said, I don't know. You, guys, you want this guy on your sales team. So God's grace produces this great faith, despite our sinfulness, just like with Abraham. But I say secondly in your outline. He does it not only despite our sinfulness, but despite our foolishness. Despite our foolishness. We're going to see a few instances in the life of Abraham of foolishness that God spared this man from. Thanks be to God for the example of others who have done foolish things who are gracious God overrules their foolishness. Because I need God to do that in my life and you need God to do that in your life. And God works in our lives by his grace to produce this great faith despite, yes, our sinfulness but also our foolishness as well. And he does that by overruling our choices, I say in your outline. Now, what kinds of choices do we make that are foolish? And we're going to see in the life of Abraham. Well, I've got a couple of categories for you there of choices that, that we make that God has to overrule because they're foolish choices. One of them is this, choices that take matters into our own hands. Now, how did Abraham do that? Right after you have the story in chapter 12, Genesis chapter 12, of Abraham being called by God out of Ur, God telling him what his assignment is. You have this great faith that Abraham is willing to follow, willing to trust God, to go to a place he does not know. And then just after that, here's what the Bible tells us, that there came a famine in the land. Now, isn't that the way it goes? You're right at this high point. God's told you all this marvelous stuff that's going to happen. God has moved in your heart for you to have the trust, the belief, the faith to follow God, and then something happens, a curveball. And chapter 12 tells us a famine. And what does Abraham do in response to this famine? The Bible tells us, as you read the narrative then in chapter 12, that he took his family to Egypt. Now, going to Egypt in itself was not the foolish move. No one can fault the man for trying to find food for his family. 
And Egypt was the place to find that. But he took matters into his own hands after having made that choice. Many of you have read it, you know the story, but he instructed his wife Sarah that when we go to Egypt, here's what's going to happen, and he correctly predicted <laughs> that these pagans are going to look on your beauty and they are going to want to take you into uh, their, their home. They want to take you from me. And so don't tell them you're my wife, tell them you're my sister. You all remember that? Now here is, here is Abraham taking matters into his own hands rather than trusting God. I've got, I, Abraham, have a plan. And my plan involves deception. And the deception will involve my wife. So instead of being the spiritual leader in my home, I'm now going to lead her into this. And you're going to tell any who inquire, and I predict that they will, that you are my, my sister. Now, here's what you, you may not know. That was half true. Because she was his half-sister. In fact, just hold your finger in chapter 12. If you'll turn over to chapter 20, chapter 20. Chapter 20, Abraham finds himself in another circumstance. He's returned from Egypt long ago. He finds himself in another place, another place where the same scenario is going to play out where Sarah can end up being the property of someone else. He's concerned about that. And so in verse 11, here's what it says. Abraham replied, I said to myself, there's surely no fear of God in this place. And they will kill me because of, of my wife. Now, just stop there. Okay, there's no fear of God in this place. Well, they've got enough fear of God to not just take her. They want to make sure she's not married. One way for her not to be married is to kill the husband. The logic of that I don't quite understand, but nonetheless, they have enough scruples to say, we won't take a married woman, but we don't have enough scruples to avoid killing the guy in order to, in order to get her. But that's what he's saying there. So they will kill me because of my wife. Therefore, I told her to say, you are my sister. Besides, she really is my sister. The daughter of my father, no, though not of my mother, she's my half-sister. And she became my wife. And when God had me wander from my father's household, I said to her, this is how you can show your love to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, he is my brother. Now, do you notice what he says? When God called me, I decided. Now, what does that tell you, dear friends? That tells you that the baggage that we acquire in our upbringing, in our nurture, we carry those same struggles with us into our new life in Christ. That's exactly what's going on with Abraham here. Abraham learned to lie in Ur. And Abraham is now carrying this habit with him. Even though he is a saved man, even though he has believed God, even though he is now justified before God, and even though he will show great acts of faith, including leaving Ur, and as we're going to see in the life of his son Isaac in just a bit, but nevertheless, he still took those struggles with him, and those were struggles that he had for the better part of his life. He not only showed it in the incident in Egypt, he now shows it years later in Genesis chapter 20 as well. And as a result of this, he goes because of the famine into Egypt. As you read the story, it goes south because we can't plan for all contingencies, can we? 
when we take matters into our own hands. And, and what happens, the Bible tells us in Genesis 12, is that Pharaoh's people see Sarah. And they report her beauty to none other than the chief guy, Pharaoh. Well, this was something that Abraham hadn't counted on. If you'll say you're my sister, in order for them to have you, they'll have to negotiate for a sister. And that will buy me some time. That's apparently his plan in order for us to escape. But his plan goes south when she is noticed by none other than Pharaoh himself. And Pharaoh doesn't have to negotiate. And so the Bible says Pharaoh took And Pharaoh took her, believing that she was not a married woman. The Bible goes on in chapter 12 to tell us that it came to his attention that she was a married woman. It doesn't tell us how, whether she told him, someone else found out and told him, we don't know. But Pharaoh found out, and immediately when he found out, he comes to Abraham and says, what is this thing you have done? Now take your wife and leave here. Because God had brought plagues upon Egypt. This is a precursor to what will happen under Moses as a result of this. And so Abraham, Pharaoh is, is, is eager to rid himself of Abraham and Sarah. He says, take her. But he not only says, take her. But he says, here's some bounty for you to take with you. Here are herds and here are servants. And he gives him great wealth as he leaves Egypt. So Abraham, who has made this foolish choice by taking matters into his own hands, even lying, using deception as his means to acquire what uh, he believes he needs, he now leaves Egypt with much more than he had. Now it may look to you then like deception pays. Right? When the guy leaves, he's got all these hurts, he's got all these people, he's got all these servants. But friends, there are always consequences to this ill-gotten gain. And as the story of the life of Abraham goes on, a couple of things happen where the bounty that he took from Egypt rears its head. One is immediately in chapter 13. There's a conflict between Abraham and his nephew Lot. Do you remember what the conflict was over? They had too much stuff. Well, where'd you get the stuff? He got a bunch more stuff from Egypt, and now we've got a conflict on our hands that he had to address in chapter 13. But but not only that, he had these servants who came with him. And in chapter 16, there's the story of a servant girl, a maidservant of Abraham named Hagar. And guess where Hagar was acquired? As part of the bounty in Egypt. Do you see that the consequences then follow you after you take matters into your own hands? They did so in the life of this man of faith, God's friend, Abraham. How much more for me, how much more for you? We're going to move move on, but friends, I want to make sure you make application of this to your life. I can't tell you how many times I have had people say to me, I have to leave my spouse. I have to divorce my spouse because I believe they're planning to leave me and I have to beat them to the punch. Something's going on 
Therefore, I need to calculate and I need to scheme to make sure that I get the upper hand in what's going to come down here. You say, really, people have told you that multiple times. Taking matters into your own hands. Well, do you have grounds to divorce your spouse? No. Do you have biblical grounds to No. But I have to do this. And do you know the reason that the person has convinced his or herself that they have to do this? Because they fail to trust God. That God can work this out in ways you cannot see. Abraham, God can work this thing out in Egypt in ways you cannot see. But Abraham schemes and deceives and takes matters into his own hands. And there are always consequences for that, friends. What God calls us to do is see what he tells us to do and then trust him with the consequences. Obey him in the midst of that difficult circumstance that you are scheming with right now, that you are cutting corners with right now, failing to obey God fully. Despite our foolishness, God works because of his grace to produce people of faith as he did with Abraham. He overrules our choices And I say in your outline as well, when we take matters into our own hands and when we take the world into our world. Now notice I have world in quotes there because I'm using the word world there in quotes the way the Bible uses it. The Greek word cosmos, the arrangement of the world, the value system of of the world. And when we bring the value system of the world into the world that God has called us to serve him, there will always be difficulty. Now, how did Abraham do this? Chapter 12, verse 1. God said, go from your father's household. You all see that? Go from your father's household. That includes your extended family. But then in verse 4 of chapter 12, the Bible tells us he took his nephew, Lot, with him. (laughs) Well, how'd that work out? So Lot's the guy I'm arguing with now in chapter 13 about land and who's going to have the better land for our herds. It's this very same Lot. He brought Lot from Ur and Lot brought Ur with him. He brought the world and the world's values with him. And that in turn affected Abraham. And so God's grace overrules our choices. And there are others in the life of Abraham as well. I mean, Ishmael, his impatience in waiting for the promised son through his wife Sarah. And so he takes Hagar, this maidservant from Egypt, and he sires a son, Ishmael, who is not the chosen son in disobedience to God. But thanks be to God, God overrules our foolish and sometimes sinful choices. But I say in your outline, God's grace teaches us better choices. God's grace teaches us better choices. Now, how so? I'll try to move quickly. But you see the life of Abraham coming from pagan idolatry. God calls him out. You see the baggage that he brought with him, the tendency to deception that he struggled with for the rest of his his life, the tendency to, to even cut corners. Instead of leaving your household, he brings Lot. That's going to have consequences for him. 
We see other foolish and sinful choices that he made. But as you go on chronologically in the life of Abraham, God is continually teaching this man, and he is growing in faith. And the apex of that growth in faith comes in the episode in chapter 22, where God tells him to sacrifice his unique son, Isaac. I'd like for you to turn to chapter 22. God's grace teaches us better choices, and he did that in the life of Abraham. It's God's work in our lives and in the life of Abraham that's designed to mature us and bring us to a level of trust that we obey the first time immediately and completely. Abraham hadn't demonstrated that completely, right? But now we come to chapter 22. And the test of whether this student of God's, Abraham, has learned the lessons of grace. And so verses 1 and 2 say this, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Now let me just stop there. Do you see how God is piling on there? I mean, he's really testing him. I want you to take not just your son. I'm reminding you he's your only son. I'm reminding you he's the son whom you love. I'm reminding you of his name, Isaac, which will remind you of the way he came to be. His name means laughter. And as your wife, Sarah, was able to conceive and bear him at the age of 90, I'm reminding you of all of that. And go with the son to the region of Moriah, sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. So let's bounce through this as quickly as we can. When it says God tested, it's emphasizing God as the subject of what's happening here. God is the one doing the testing. Contrary to all the televangelists who say Satan is the one who brings bad things into our lives, trials into our lives, all testing into our lives, God is the one doing the testing. God is the central actor in this drama. He's the subject of this verb testing. And the word testing means to show what condition someone is in before God, whether he will obey God or not. And he says, take your son. Literally, it's take now your son. It's a command. And now is added to enforce, the word now is added to enforce the command. And take your only son. Well, technically, he's not his only son, right? He's had Ishmael before that. But he is his unique son, his chosen son. And he is Isaac. It personalizes it. And he says, I want you to sacrifice him in Moriah as a burnt offering. That phrase burnt offering means that which goes up. Offered to God. And the smoke of the offering goes up to God. Later in the book of Leviticus, as it describes how sacrifices are to be done, the sacrifice would be killed with a knife, Leviticus chapter 1. And then the offerer would arrange the sacrifice on top of the wood on the altar, light a fire that would devour the sacrifice, and it went up in the smoke of the flame, ascending, as it were, to God. Take your beloved son and do this. A severe test, to put it mildly. Not only is he facing the sacrifice of the son for whom he waited 25 years, this would invalidate 
If he does this, this goes through, it would invalidate all of the promises that were made earlier about you being a great nation and all the descendants. And this guy has been a deceiver, a guy who takes matters into his own hands. Can you, can you imagine how many things Abraham is thinking about with regard to how to get around this? But God has matured him so that he does not take matters into his own hands. Now, some of the drama of this episode in chapter 22 is removed for us because we know the outcome. But friends, let's do our best to put ourselves in Abraham's position. Let's try to imagine what he's thinking. And he's going to have time to think. Because in verse 2, God said, I want you to go to a place. I want you to go to Moriah, which is a three days journey from where they were. And why, why not just get it over with? God wants him to have time to think about it. And Abraham's going to have time to think and to fret and to contemplate and perhaps as a result to back out. So Moriah is this three days journey, but Abraham in the text, chapter 22, does not ask any questions. God has shown him where to go in the past by bringing him to Canaan. And God says, I'm going to have you go to a place called Moriah and I will show you where that is. He doesn't know where that is. But God's going to, to show him. And so the Bible says in verse 3, early in the, the next morning, chapter 22, early the next morning, Abraham got up, loaded his donkey, he took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. So there's one delay in leaving, and that is to make preparation, including the cutting of the wood. I don't think I've ever cut wood. Probably wouldn't cut wood very well. But cutting wood for this sacrifice would be excruciating. Because all the while he's doing it, he knows the purpose for which he is cutting this wood. And he chops this wood ahead of time because he doesn't know where he's going. He doesn't know whether there'll be wood there. So he chops it. And he awakens Isaac to go with him to worship the Lord, something that apparently Isaac was familiar with because he's seen his father do it in the past. But again, Abraham knows the uniqueness and the horror of the event for which he wakes his son to go with him. And I want you to notice as chapter 22 goes on, there's the absence of conversation. Until verses 7 and 8, there's the absence of conversation between Abraham and Isaac. They travel for three days, and we have no record of them saying anything to each other until they arrive. Perhaps Isaac senses from his father that his father is troubled. He already knows something's different because of this unusual and hastily arranged trip. And so what must be going through Abraham's mind? He's offered sacrifice before, so he knows what that entails and all the awful sensations that go with it. And now my son is going to be the object of that. Anything he says to his son, what, would you, what could you say? For why we're going. And why then when we see Moriah in the distance, it's just you and I going, what will he say? And so he's better off saying nothing because he will easily fall back into his tendency to deceive, to tell a half-truth. So the next thing we're told is that in verse 4, on the third day, Abraham looked up and he saw the place in the distance. 
What's Abraham thinking as he sees the place? Consider this. Consider how you feel when you go to a cemetery and you visit there the grave of a loved one who's gone on. And there's a a sense of loss and there's a sense of, of sadness. Think how profound the emotions must be for Abraham as he sees that place and he walks toward it. But suppressing his emotions, he's all business. And here's what verses 5 and 6 say. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. And he himself carried the fire and the knife. He has chopped this wood and he has now placed the wood on Isaac to be carried. The end of verse 6 simply says, the two of them went on together. And commentators and preachers have long mentioned the steps that Abraham is taking and how each one of them must be harder and more difficult than the next. Not mostly because this old man of over a hundred is climbing a mountain, but because each step takes him closer to this place of execution. And finally, the silence is broken. And it's broken by Isaac. And he's putting it together. And verse 7 says, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, the fire and wood are here. But where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham's answer, <laughs> the deceiver, he's, 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 got to, he's trying to think of something. But God's work in his life is such that His answer is evasive, but it's not deceptive because what he says in verse 8 is true. God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. The end of verse 8 simply says then the two of them went on together. They continue on, but there's a profound silence that descends on them until God intervenes in the next act, which begins in verses 9 and 10. When they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. Now our English translations do not capture what I'm going to tell you. But in those two verses, verses 9 and 10, each of the seven actions that Abraham takes begins with the word and. To highlight in kind of staccato fashion each one of these things. And they reached the place. And Abraham built an altar. And he arranged the wood. And he bound his son. And he laid him on the altar. And he reached out his hand. And he took the knife. And in the midst of all of those ands, highlighting those actions of this man now matured to obey God and just trust that God will figure it out. In the midst of all of that, thanks be to God, it is interrupted with a blessed intervention from God. And there is, in addition to all these ands, there's a but. 
But the angel of the Lord called out from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. And Abraham answers exactly as he had at the beginning of the chapter when God first gave him this dreadful assignment, here I am. Verse 12 says, do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. How quickly this sounds like God is learning something. God says, now I know. But of course, God does not need to learn since he's all-knowing. And so you all have heard me say from time to time, has it ever occurred to you that it has never occurred to God? Nothing has ever occurred to God. God doesn't learn anything. But it's saying this, now that you've demonstrated that you trust me completely, so that you obey me without taking matters into your own hands, without rationalizing, without changing the terms to make them more palatable to you, now you are ready to fulfill what I promised to you back in chapter 12. And then God repeats the promises of chapter 12 to him. Abraham, do you see that I have by my grace brought you this far? God is saying to him, you were a stone worshiper in Ur and I brought you to Canaan. You were a childless old man married to a childless old woman and I've given you the chosen child through whose descendants all the nations of the earth will be blessed. You were a doubter and I have now made you a model of faith. The faith of Abraham, that God would provide a way out of this dilemma. He goes through all of that and he prepares all of that, but somehow God's going to work in this thing. And I've just learned that I've just got to trust God and not take matters into my own hands. But that faith is hinted at back in verse 5 of chapter 22. Please look at verse 5. He said to his servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then please notice this phrase, we will come back to you. Say what? You're going to sacrifice the son. How is the son going to come back? And that's why the title of the message is From God's Grace to Great Faith. Because in all that had happened and transpired with this man, despite his sin, despite his foolishness, despite his cunning, despite his deceitfulness, taking matters into his own hands, God had brought him to the point that he learned to trust completely. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, verses 17 through 19, Hebrews 11, 17 through 19, let me read. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son even though God had said to him, it's through Isaac your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. And figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. And then you all know that in God's intervention, Abraham looked. There's a ram in the thicket. He built an altar there. And he named this place Jehovah-Jireh, the Lord will provide. And in his evasive answer to Isaac back in verse number 8, Father, where's the sacrifice? He hinted at this. He said, the Lord will provide. And now God has provided. 
And so the passage goes on to say, To this day it is said on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided, and later the temple will be built on the mount where God called Abraham to offer his son. So God's grace produces great faith, despite our sinfulness, despite our foolishness. And for those of you that are still awake, a third thing. Despite our limitations... And I say limitation for this reason. I mean we are limited in the sense that we don't know. We just don't know what's going to happen. But we take matters into our own hands when we think we do know. And that's what Abraham did. But he learned he was limited. His knowledge was limited. God's is unlimited. So therefore obey God. But despite our limitations and then our acting on those, those limitations, we don't know how God is going to resolve the various dilemmas in which he brings us to demonstrate and grow in faith. And I also use the word limitation here in the sense of need. Now this is hard, friends, but the Lord God Almighty wants us to understand this. There is no one in the universe, no one, that we ultimately need other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And he will do whatever is necessary to teach his people that lesson. But we have those limitations because we think we have to have. And if this thing or this person is gone, I won't be able to survive. But Abraham had to learn that it's ultimately all about God. And God is ultimately all we need. I personally see a number of parallels in this story of Abraham and Isaac to the Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father. In Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, he is the unique chosen son. He carries the wood for us on his own shoulder, taking the cross to the mount of sacrifice, Mount Calvary. Isaac does not know why this is happening. Jesus does, and he still goes. And then there's the substitute, the Bible teaches us that Jesus is God's substitute, that he has provided for you and me. So what lessons should we learn out of the life of Abraham? Man, a ton. A ton, right? But we're going to close with this. Look, the one thing, no, not the one thing, the one person you need is God himself. And the way you have God himself, the only way, is the way, the truth, and the life, the Lord Jesus. And God has provided a way. God has provided a lamb. And God invites you to receive the substitute, the sacrifice that he made on your behalf. So we're going to bow and pray in just a moment. Those of you that have never come to God through Jesus, he offers you that opportunity now. Jesus died on the cross as a substitute for your sin and my sin. He lived the life you should have lived. He died the death that we deserve. He offers that gift to you. And in turn, for you receiving who Jesus is and what he did, and committing your life to him, he gives you the gift, the free gift of eternal life. So when we bow from your heart to God, you acknowledge to him, Lord, I need the sacrifice that Jesus gave in substitute in place for me. I ask you to forgive me, and I give my life to you.
And then for those of us who have done that, let us have a time of confession and repentance. Lord, I sin. Lord, I'm foolish. Lord, I take matters into my own hands. Lord, I scheme because I don't trust. In those matters where God has spoken to you then, let us each take those to the Lord. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And as we're confessing, let's do this as well. Thank God that despite our sin, despite our foolishness, and despite our limitations, he makes us people of great faith. Let's bow together. Oh, Lord God, thank you for these dear brothers and sisters that you've brought together to this place despite the difficulties of getting here. Lord, we're here by your divine appointment. You wanted us here. You wanted us here to hear your word. We thank you for your word that is full of stories of men and women with feet of clay and hearts that are deceitful and drift from the true and living God just like ours. So we thank you for giving us the story of the father of the faithful, none other than Abraham himself, himself, but all of his limitations and all of his tendencies towards sin and foolishness. And Oh Lord, I can identify with that. Yet you made him the man of great faith. Lord, keep teaching me. Keep teaching me in the circumstances you bring my way. Oh, test me, Lord, so that I will mature as Father Abraham and to learn to trust you completely and thus to obey immediately. I thank you that I am your son and you are my father. And I am so because I am related to your unique son, the Lord Jesus. And his sacrifice has been applied to me and his perfect life has been applied to me. I pray that there are some in this room right now for whom that blessed transaction is taking place. They move from a position of outside your family to adopted as sons and daughters into your family. We ask you, Lord, to go with us this week as we look to apply these things that we've seen from the life of Abraham. Help us to meet the challenges that you sovereignly bring our way in a way of faith trusting you that if we obey you, you will honor that choice and work those things out in ways we cannot see for our good and your glory. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.